Hello and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name's Thalithan Naren and I'm a GP and addiction medicine advanced trainee in Melbourne and I'm joined by Dr. Fergal Armstrong, a GP addiction medicine specialist and lifestyle medicine specialist. Fergal, good to have you on the show yet again. Hi, it's Philippe. Philippe, and how are you? I'm good, thank you. And in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, uh, what we're going to do is summarize all the other episodes that we've talked about alcohol and alcohol use disorder and probably talk about some key points and takeaway points for our listeners and viewers and basically give them the so-called golden nuggets on how to manage alcohol use disorder. So Fergal, I'll uh, turn over to you. What would you say would be some of the main takeaway points that you would mention about alcohol and how to manage alcohol use disorder? So firstly, it's important to understand that this is not a reactive process. This has to be a planned process. And, and I liken it to three phases, and each phase is at least a week. So, you know, you need to work up your patient. There needs to be a diagnostic workup. And then there needs to be a closely controlled, networked, coordinated detox process. And then there needs to be relapse prevention. So, you know, the workup of the patient is, is, is a really important thing. You know, you're, you're doing a whole pile of blood tests, investigations, and you're deciding on treatment planning. If you don't do the prep work and you dive into a, a, an alcohol home-based detox, well, that's just a recipe for disaster. Sure. So when we talk about blood tests, what specific blood tests would you be focusing on initially as part of your workup? So, I mean, you know, the, the usual test would include a full blood count, a urea and electrolytes, liver function test and a, and a coagulation screen. And, you know, we can understand why we would do those. So within a full blood count, you know, we'd have, you know, we'd have a hemoglobin. And if you were anemic, you know, in the context of alcohol use disorder, would that indicate a bleeding peptic ulcer, for instance? Uh, a raised MCV might indicate chronic alcohol use, but again, that's not specific, you know, you know it, it, it only, and it's not sensitive either, but only about 50% of people with alcohol use disorder actually have elevated MCVs. Um, and then with regards to the urea and electrolytes, so we need to understand if there's any renal impairment because that will influence our decision regarding um, you know, relapse prevention medication. Remember that renal impairment is a contraindication to the use of a camprosate. Moving on to liver, uh, liver function tests. So, you know, significantly raised transaminase might militate against the use of naltrexone. Um, you know, the, a, a raised bilirubin or a low albumin might indicate uh, signs of hepatic decompensation, which would also uh, suggest a you shouldn't really be thinking about a home-based detox but rather some you know, a detox in hospital transaminase rises also might indicate the need for not using diazepam but rather oxazepam and again the use of oxazepam does that actually mean that you should really be going into hospital if you if you are precarious enough in your liver function to need oxazepam rather than diazepam is that in and of itself an indication that you need a hospital-based detox? And then INR, the coagulation screen, if you've lost your synthetic function, 
your INR will be high. So in the absence of anticoagulation, if you've got, and in the presence of alcohol use disorder, if you have a raised INR, well, to me, that is an indication that you've got decompensated liver disease, and actually you need to be detoxed in a hospital, let alone a, a detox unit. It needs to be a medically supervised detox with the presence of gastroenterologists helping you out. So, you know, it's important to understand that, that blood tests need to be done and other tests need to be done. So, you know, would you, what's your view on the imaging that might be associated with alcohol use disorder, Philippin? Well, one could certainly do an, uh, an abdominal ultrasound, mainly looking at the liver and, and screening for cirrhosis or portal hypertension. Uh, yeah. One could also, if, if uh, indicated or desired, could do a fibrous scan to check again for cirrhosis. Mm. Practically, some of these investigations, particularly a fibre scan, are not really all that available in regional areas. Uh, a lot of fibre scans are located in metropolitan hospitals. So um, biochemical testing for cirrhosis, such as an APRI score um, or a, a PEW calculator as well, could certainly be, be utilised as well. And those are the other, I guess, adjuncts that I would do just to check for liver health in particular, because as you've mentioned in, in what you've just said, Fergal, it really is important to know how vulnerable the patient is, how severe their liver disease may be, and based on the severity of their liver disease will determine their suitability for either home-based withdrawal or inpatient or residential withdrawal. Yeah, that, that's, if I can just go back to the APRI score that you've mentioned, and thanks for bringing that up. So one of the elements of the APRI score is a platelet count, which then goes back to the full blood count and why it's so important. So fundamentally, if you've got low platelets, it, it, in the context of alcohol use disorder, it may suggest cirrhosis, and certainly the platelet count is put into the APRI calculator to actually come up with a score that does or does not indicate cirrhosis. So on a kind of a gross population level, a normal platelet count really suggests the absence of cirrhosis. So I'm personally very reassured when I do a blood test on someone and come back with a normal platelet count. Absolutely. And I think um, piggybacking on what you were just saying, Fergal, the reason we do things is very important and having a plan in place is very important. Just deciding that someone's going to go through detox or withdrawal management is not enough by and of itself. Obviously, we have to work up patients, but then after withdrawal management, what's going to happen? Are they going to go into re rehabilitation? Are there, is, will the rehabilitation be residential rehabilitation versus day programs? Will there be anti-craving medications uh, used? Will there not be anti-craving medications used? What kind of peer support will be available? So the planning is not only the biochemical and imaging planning, but also treatment paradigm planning, this is probably going to take up six months minimum of the patient's life going through both the withdrawal management and the post-withdrawal management care, and then probably ongoing, maybe even lifelong follow-up and, and treatment. So we need to have the patient on board, we need to be clear about what the goals are of our interventions and our management. And we need to communicate this, document this, and have adequate follow-up as well, because otherwise we are setting both ourselves and the patient up for failure. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. And so this just goes to the point that you don't start an alcohol detox on a Friday afternoon when someone comes in and says, well, hey, I've quit drinking. Give me my diazepam. It, it, that's just unsafe. I mean, if, if, we, if we move on to the second phase, the actual detox, 
I mean, I see, I see the actual detox. There are some critical elements to it. So first of all, there's the, there's the, the patient factors, the prescribing factors, and the medical review factors. Yeah. So we need to ensure, and I suppose this heralds back to treatment planning. You know, we need a safe home environment, a safe drug-free home environment where there is a supportive adult that is able to effectively supervise the patient at home. We need to discuss how is the medication going to be delivered? Is it going to be daily pickup from the pharmacist or is it going to be a one-off script handled by the supervising uh, responsible adult? And we need to discuss how is the patient going to be monitored? Because you know the, the patients need to be reviewed every day during a detox. So who's, who's going to do that? Is it going to be the GP? Is it going to be the AOD worker? And where is it going to happen? Are, are, are we going to do this by home visiting? Or is a patient going to come into clinic every day? And, you know, and again, you know, what happens? How do we manage failure? How do we manage you know, uh, the, the patient not actually succeeding in their alcohol detox? So what happens then? So these are crucial issues to determine within that week of detox. What, what would you say to that, Philippe? I couldn't agree more. Uh, having these frank discussions right at the start, uh, planning for any treatment failures, planning for all... Mm. Uh, issues that can occur and having some contingency plans and most importantly making sure your plan is safe that the patient yeah. is at the center of the planning and that in the event of a severe relapse or another unforeseen consequence that the patient's safety can be guaranteed is is paramount uh, i think a medication that we haven't talked about yet but we have talked about in multiple other episodes is is thiamine and and the uh the great importance that we have on thiamine. Um, and I hope our, our listeners and viewers will realize our passion for thiamine and if nothing else, <laughs> yes. will ensure that any patient that is undergoing a withdrawal program is placed on an appropriate dosage of thiamine. Um, yeah. uh, so uh, basically to, to recap some of those numbers for our viewers, to tr the treatment dose for Wernicke's encephalitis is 500 milligrams IV TDS. For prophylaxis in hospital during withdrawal management, I'd probably say 300 milligrams IV TDS. At a minimum in a hospital facility, oral 100 milligrams TDS. And I guess in community, when you have someone with chronic alcohol use disorder, um, just as a baseline, 100 milligrams daily. Would that be a fair summary, Fergal? Absolutely, and you know, we can't overstate the importance of thiamine. And I suppose during the alcohol withdrawal phase, I would actually recommend 100 milligrams three times a day orally for my patients during alcohol withdrawal. And then after it's complete, then you could drop down to 100 milligrams daily. Agreed. I mean, I think the other, we, we've talked about Wernicke's encephalopathy and the importance of recognizing it and treating it, and that's why we harp on so much about thiamine. But really... It's, it's all very well to think we're going to plan a detox and it all goes swimmingly well. The key thing about safety is to actually recognize and have a contingency plan in place during a detox for the things that can go wrong. So you need to be aware of what the typical course is and you also then need to be aware of what an atypical course is during, a, during a, a, an alcohol detox. And so we need to, be, we need to know how people usually progress through, which is usually very well, but we also need to be aware of the potential risks for seizures and delirium tremens and uh, withdrawal, uh, withdrawal delirium. And we also need to know 
at least how to recognize them so that when, then we can escalate care. And usually in the context of a home-based detox, such escalation will be referral to a local hospital or an emergency department. So therefore, again, that needs to be identified. You know, before you start an alcohol detox, you need to identify where are you going to send this patient if the course is atypical, if things start going wrong. What would you say to that, Philippe? I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, we've talked about safety. Safety is the most important thing. Knowing where your referral pathways are is, is very important, and also that the patient knows where the referral pathways are because there's yeah. nothing worse than, say, on a weekend. And by the way, we, as we've discussed earlier, we do not start alcohol withdrawal management on a Friday afternoon just to try and no, avoid this scenario, but I'm just using this for dramatic yeah. license. But you don't want the patient to be uncontactable in a cell phone free area by themselves having a complication. So yes. the patient and their carer need to know where to escalate their care when they feel something's wrong, when you've clearly articulated what to expect, and knowing where to seek help is absolutely important, both for the treating doctor as well as the patient. So yes, absolutely. I totally agree yeah. with that, Fergal. Yeah, so we need clear pathways of care escalation. But we also need clear networks, don't we? You know, because, you know there's no lone rangers in, in, in alcohol use disorder. There's no heroes in alcohol use disorder. So no one should be operating in isolation. So it's very important to have a clearly established network of other people that are going to help you manage your patients. Who would you put in your network then, Philippe? So I think in Victoria, we're very fortunate that we have uh, DACAS, which is the Drug and Alcohol Clinical Advisory Service, which is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week uh, service that provides specialist addiction medicine support for mm. primary care practitioners, nurse practitioners, uh, or other healthcare practitioners who have any concerns about addiction. There's also your local uh, pharmacotherapy area-based networks for, say, opioid use disorder, but also there are usually within PHNs um, doctors, GPs with addiction specialist knowledge that are useful. Usually most local hospitals, um, I should rephrase that by saying most tertiary hospitals would have an addiction medicine service and the registrars or specialists can be contacted. But also finding out in your specific area who has expertise in an area or has um, gone through these procedures before. And I'm talking mainly regional areas where our regional colleagues may not have access to the supports that uh, us doctors in metropolitan area take for granted and may not have access to the same levels of support. So just knowing what's local to your surroundings is very important, particularly before you start undertaking some of these withdrawal management paradigms because you don't want to run into complications without knowing who you can ask for help. Exactly, yeah. There are no heroes and when it goes tits up, you need to be well supported. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there any other takeaway message that you can think of for our listeners and viewers, Fergal, that we haven't covered just yet? So in Star Wars A New Hope, Princess Leia said to Obi-Wan Kenobi in a holographic message buried into R2-D2, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're the only one who can, or you're my only hope. When I hear that, I am concerned that, that patients are trying to split so splitting is when a patient elevates to a position of idealized dependency, one particular clinician or individual, 
and demonizes everybody else. And then when when that person is is idealized, then comes the request for you know opioid. Uh, uh, drugs of dependence, so that would include opioids or benzodiazepines. And in the case of alcohol use disorder, it could very much well be benzodiazepines. So the, the use of benzodiazepines in alcohol use disorder has to be controlled and regulated. Patients coming and saying, oh, you know, you're the only one that can help me. Please give me my benzos. I, I don't want to be referred to anyone else. I just want you to give me the benzodiazepines regularly for harm minimization. That is a big red flag. The second syndrome is the tail wagging the dog syndrome. So patients coming and saying, I've already started. I've seen the light and it's Friday afternoon. There's no one else you can speak to, but I've stopped drinking. So therefore, to prevent me having a seizure, you must give me benzodiazepines. So, you know, this, this idea that patients are, are manipulating the clinical situation to, to oblige the prescriber to prescribe benzodiazepines, you know, without the usual safeguards is a very dangerous situation to be in as well. What, what do you say to, to clinicians on how to manage patients who come in saying, I've already quit drinking? Uh, Fergal, not only can I tell you what I tell clinicians, I can recount from personal experience a few days ago where a patient I'd seen on the wards uh, rang my service and asked to speak expressly to me and saying, I'm going into alcohol withdrawal. I need diazepam. I do not want to come into the hospital. Can you please send them? To, can you please send me a script to my nearest pharmacy? Um, and to which I took a, a detailed history, asked uh, the exact symptoms uh, that were going uh, that the patient was going through, and then uh, politely yet firmly directed him to go to the emergency department if he was concerned about his withdrawal symptoms and was concerned about withdrawal seizure. This is an individual who's never had a withdrawal seizure. Having having said that. And he was quite insistent that I wasn't assisting him or helping him appropriately and that I should just do the script and he would manage at home uh, with support from uh, friends who he declined to mention or where they were staying, uh, but was very insistent. And this was a, a phone call that ultimately took 10 to 15 minutes where I was trying to be supportive um, and obviously with any consultation or any phone call, uh, the inclination and we should believe our patients, but we should also be safe. And as we've mentioned before, it is not safe to do a phone consultation and send a script for a quantity of diazepam without assessing the patient or knowing what are the substances that have been used or being able to mm -hmm. verify uh, how significant the withdrawal symptoms have been. And yeah. I stood by my guns and ultimately the safest thing for an individual or a patient who is concerned about withdrawals or withdrawal seizures is to be in a monitored environment, be that a withdrawal yeah. unit or an ED. So yeah. my advice to practitioners is the advice I myself take for myself, which is patient safety first. Giving diazepam in an uncontrolled situation is very unsafe. And if you cannot guarantee safety, you need to make sure you can put the patient in an environment that can be safe. And this can be a very uncomfortable conversation sometimes. And at the end of the consultation, as a healthcare practitioner, we, I think most doctors are people pleasers. We, we get into medicine to try and help people and make people feel good. But sometimes it, with confrontation or saying no to a patient for, for the reasons of good clinical governance and good clinical management, it can leave us feeling drained and upset, but we must be safe. There's no, be safe. there's no benefit in doing something you don't believe in just to 
quote-unquote make someone happy. Is, is that fair, Fergal? Yeah, and I think it's important to understand that patients have the right, the right to refuse your advice. But that refusal does not then oblige you to then move or change your clinical practice or advice from a position of safety to a position of relative danger. Yeah? So if patients, if you've set up what you think is a safe management process, patients always have the right to refuse. But then, so long as they've got informed consent and as long as they're mentally competent, then by such refusal, then they take it upon themselves to, 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 to assume the risks of their decision. So when I hear patients say, if you don't give me benzodiazepines, I'm going to have a seizure and, that, and therefore it'll be your fault and I'll sue you. Well, my response to that is to say, well, look, I'm really sorry you feel that way, but you know, this is what I'm prepared to do. This is safe. And if you're not prepared to engage in that, you know, I'm, I am of the opinion that you are of sound mind. You can make your own decision and therefore you are taking the consequences of your own decision upon yourself. And I have no further medical legal liability to you because I am offering you a safe process. But that's a very difficult conversation sometimes to have with people. And I think it's really important as doctors, as healthcare practitioners, um, to have firm boundaries. It's important for us to know exactly what the literature says, what best practice management is, and try to stick to that as much as possible. And yeah. that's not just in the best interests of us as clinicians, but also in the for the patient's best interest as well, because the patient's best interest is best served when we're practicing good, clear, evidence-based medicine. And yeah. I think in many respects, that's probably the best place to end this series that we've done on alcohol use disorder. So this is not the end of Cracking Addiction, dear viewer and listener. This is just the end of one of the many topics that we're talking about. But please do join us for our upcoming episodes where we will discuss further topics in addiction medicine. Thank you, Fergal, for your time once again. And to our listeners and viewers, bye for now. Bye.